If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. I am not Kim. So my name is Steve Winterfeld. Kim's asked me to step in. She just finished up a show. Uh, and as you know, she's always got one going on. Uh, she's coming up next will be September 7th in Charlotte. But uh, while she's on the road, she gave us a chance to step in. I am the advisory CISO for Akamai. Uh, you know, my background is, is very much in being around cybersecurity. Was he uh, came out of defense contracting, built out multiple security operations center, went over to Nordstrom, where I was the Nordstrom Bank CISO back when they had a bank not too long ago. Um, my wife misses that discount. Uh, then we moved over to Charles Schwab, uh, did threat intelligence and incident response, and finally had a chance to come here to Akamai, where I helped drive the strategy and work with customers on what problems we should be solving next. With me today is Sean. Hey, Steve, thank you for having me. So go ahead and introduce yourself and a little bit about your background. Sure, uh, Sean Flint, Director of Security Technology and Strategy here at Akamai. Uh, been in security for 20 years. I've been in Akamai for 11. Started uh, kind of in the front lines, uh, implementing the security solutions for our customers, uh, helping uh, block uh, application attacks, and then have gotten to a point where I'm now helping um, our, our company when it comes to talking to security thought leaders uh, within uh, organizations and making sure that our products are solving the, the challenges that customers and companies are seeing today, as well as positioning ourselves to be able to handle the, the challenges of tomorrow. Awesome. And so at Akamai, you know, we see at any given day, maybe up to a, a third of the traffic on the, I mean, a fourth of the traffic on the internet. Um, we see a lot of threat traffic and we wanna pause every now and then and share some of that research. And so in that vein, you know, we, we take the kind of things we do. We have a WAF, we do API protection, we do DDoS protection. Uh, we do access control, we do secure web gateway, uh, and across all those products, we find, you know, threat trends, we find, you know, best practices that some of our customers are using. And today we wanted to pause in and share some of that. And what we have is our, uh, basically our state of the internet report. We put out a number of those every year. Some of those are focused on industry. We just finished one in commerce. We have one coming up in financial services. Earlier this year, we also do topic driven ones. We had one on API. And today we're gonna to talk about one that came out on ransomware. So Sean, walk me through a little bit about what we're gonna be covering today, what we're talking about. Sure, so you know when we, when we think of ransomware, we're really thinking about extortion, right? So um, there are different you know, models of extortion that uh, ransomware groups use. Um, the first one, I think, is, is the one that everybody thinks of, which is data encryption. So that's the one where uh, everybody's afraid that there's going to be a pop-up window that comes up one day and says, 
all your all your user data is encrypted. You need to pay a certain amount of cryptocurrency to be able to to access your data again. Um, and and that is probably the most common one that that uh, ransomware has used in the past. But there's also a couple of others. Uh, one being uh, data exfiltration or stealing the data and then threatening to release sensitive data. So kind of holding the data hostage. And anytime there's a ransomware attack, you need to assume that there's also a data breach because if they're able to encrypt uh, the, the user data, they're also able to take that user data. In many instances, they do. So um, what we are seeing and what we'll cover in this report as well is kind of a, a focus on uh, data exfiltration or stealing the data and then threatening to release sensitive data in the dark web or selling it on the dark web. And then, you know, the last extortion model that I think is probably is, is very common, although you might not hear um, uh, a lot of it, is DDoS extortion. So DDoS is distributed denial of service. Think of um, somebody sending enough traffic to an application to bring it down. That's an example of, of DDoS. And that kind of extortion uh, usually starts where um, the, the, the company gets an email saying, if you don't pay us a certain amount of cryptocurrency, we're going to bring down your site and everybody's going to know it and you're not going to be able to do business. Um, and then in, in many instances, they actually send out a, a, a kind of a mini DDoS to, to kind of show that they're capable of doing it. Um, and we are starting to see um, ransomware attackers starting to utilize this extortion business model to help kind of pressure the company to pay that ransom. Yeah, and I equate that to, you know, back in the day when there was a local mafia family and people would pay protection so they weren't ripped off. Uh, and it's that same kind of extortion where, you know, if you pay us, this won't happen uh, on the DDoS side. The ransomware side, um, and I will highlight again, we posted the the link in comments to our research hub. It has a number of blogs out there. Uh, it has uh, this report and past reports uh, worth checking in every now and then. And, and if you are actively trying to learn about threat reports, I do want to go back and talk about this extortion, though. Really what I see in this extortion model is a difference between this and other threats in what I call the flash to bay. And so if, if someone's stealing my credit cards or stealing customer information, that may go on for a couple months. And then I may detect them and I may do an investigation for a week and need to determine, yes, they are actually doing that. And then I may have three days before I have to announce it, depending on what kind of data it is and if I'm a regulated industry. That's a lot of time. Three days is a lot of time compared to a DDoS attack or a ransomware attack where everybody knows right away. The network is offline. You, nobody can get to the website. And so these are different kind of attacks because there's no time to react. You need to execute a plan or develop a plan while you're executing it real time. And, and that's why I think these are different. And we want to focus this report on kind of that, what to do about that. Real briefly, where are we getting this data from? So we're looking at um, about 90 different ransomware groups and, and some of the data that they leaked on their sites. And then we kind of coupled that with uh, research focusing on the actual victims of the ransomware groups. And we used a, a company called Zoom Info to kind of provide additional details and flush that out. 
And the time frame for the report is uh, 20 months. So October of 2021 through May of 2023. Uh, so it gives us a, a pretty relative snapshot of what's going on in ransomware, uh, you know, in 2023. Perfect. What did you learn? <laughs> um, there's some really interesting things going on. Um, I think, you know, one way to really kind of highlight where ransomware is right now is maybe to talk about some of the some uh, two of the probably biggest ransomware groups and what they're doing because it really kind of shows um, kind of the evolution of the of the attack groups as well as these two particular uh, groups take up over over fifty percent of all the, of the all the ransomware attacks out there. So uh, the first one is a ransomware group called CLOP, and that's spelled C C L zero P. Um, and I guess before we get started with that. I think that one of the biggest takeaways here is that uh, ransomware groups are running uh, a business plan. This is a very organized, uh, they're very organized groups. They have and are implementing business plans. And you'll start to see that these groups are really behaving more like a company than they are um, or, or, or what you might expect. And, and one of the kind of examples of this is that CLOP has its own research group and they are focusing on zero day vulnerabilities. And a zero-day vulnerability is, is a, a vulnerability usually within software. And if it's zero-day, it means nobody knows about it. Um, so if you find one, you understand that the security solutions haven't found it. The company who might have written the software, they don't know about it. Nobody knows about it, which means if you try to exploit it, there's probably a pretty good chance that you'll be able to exploit it because nobody's really defending against it. So what's interesting about CLOP is that their business model is really driven by discovering zero-day vulnerabilities and then uh, executing on them. And they've been very successful. Uh, in the last year, they've grown their victim count nine times um, based off of some, some really significant vulnerabilities. What's also interesting, though, is that they're really relying on those vulnerabilities. If they can't find a vulnerability, if they find a vulnerability after a while, it gets patched. Uh, if they haven't found another one, they actually slow down. Um, so they're, they're not consistent throughout the year. They're really, they, what they do is they, they find a vulnerability, they really try to monopolize on it. And then when things slow down, they're trying to find another vulnerability. That makes sense. I can see, you know, kind of that, that revenue-driven model. Uh, traditionally, it was done through phishing. Uh, sounds like they're shifting i don't know if it's because we're getting better at stopping phishing emails or and it just saw a new opportunity to do innovation i will tell you it does constantly amaze me how much innovation i see inside the the threat community uh finding new revenue models um who else have have been active so the biggest ransomware group that's taking up 39 percent of all the victims that we looked at is a group called Lockbit. And again, Lockbit is running a business model where they are using, they are, they actually have created a ransomware as a service. So we, we've, we always hear about, you know, applications as a service, software as a service. Uh, this, this group has created a ransomware as a service. And so um, they're providing other attackers the ability to do ransomware. Um, and uh, that allows them to not only be able to, to attack, you know, the, the targets they want to attack, but it also allows them to uh, gain revenue uh, by allowing other people to use uh, their attack methods. What's interesting about them is not only are they doing ransomware as a service, they have a bug bounty. 
And that you usually hear about from major corporations. You know, Microsoft has a bug bounty, Cisco has a bug. Bug bounties are basically companies are encouraging um, hackers to find bugs within the software and then report them to the company. And when they do, they get paid. Um, and so it kind of encourages the hackers to, to uh, report it versus, you know, utilize it and try to exploit it. Um, and it's a, it's a great way for companies to find bugs within their software. So Lockbit is now saying that they have a bug bounty and they'll pay up to, in certain instances, up to a million dollars for bugs that are found within their software. Um, and I think that's just kind of a, another example of how they're, they're trying to operate their group like a business um, and a company. Yeah, there's a great book on that whole, you know, selling vulnerabilities. This is how they tell me the world ends, you know, and it is. It's interesting. I want to make sure I understand. So this as a service, you talk about this ransomware as a service or denial of service as a service. These are then I can just go rent ransomware. I can go pay somebody to do these attacks for me. Yeah, it means that if you wanted to attack, you don't have to do all the technical stuff. Uh, get all of the tools, figure out how to do it. There's a service that will do that for you. So if you have, uh, I guess, the, 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 um, the time and, and, you've, and you've made the decision to do that, and maybe you've got a little bit of money, uh, in this particular example, what they're doing is um, Lockbit gets 25% of, of whatever you extort. Uh, so if you're using their service, you get 75% of it. Um, you you have the initiative, you get to do it, you kick it off, but they're the ones that are actually, you're using all of their tools and services. So you don't have to be technically savvy uh, in that particular area. You're going to use them as a service. So I might be great at collecting the ransom and laundering money, and then I can rent everything or pay somebody else to do everything for me. That makes perfect sense. Good. It, it um, makes sense, but it's, it's really scary. <laughs> There is, but there is a whole criminal ecosystem out there. Yes. And yes. that's why we use terms like they have business models, they have innovation. You know, we talk about, you know, how can cybersecurity use AI? They're having that same discussion. How can the attackers use AI against us? So it is, it is scary. Um, yes. So the other thing I want to bring up, you've great, you know, Clop and Lockbit. I'm a huge advocate of the MITRE attack framework. And so MITRE is, is a non-for-profit and they put out this framework and, and the, there's 14 steps or stages of an attack from reconnaissance to finding a vulnerability to getting access to executing your payload to setting up command and control. So all of those steps. And if you go into the, the MITRE attack framework navigator, you can then click a button that says, show me attacks for something like APT29 or CLOP. And it will actually show you what technical methods they use. What are their techniques to break into a network? And so for people out there that, that are on the more technical side or want to set up, you know, an exercise of walking your sock through, can we detect these techniques? Having your red team do it, MITRE is a tremendous tool. So uh, let's switch a little bit here and talk about the methods of attack by ransomware groups. How are they changing? So, you know, you mentioned phishing um, and, and phishing is still definitely one way to uh, get into a network. And, and just to kind of back up just a little bit, you know, phishing is sending out emails, um, hoping that, you know, uh, somebody's either clicking on a link or clicking on an attachment 
for ransomware, usually it's an attachment that's going to install malware. Uh, and they've had to evolve this. You know, Microsoft finally disabled all their macros um, on anything that's kind of being sent as, a, as an attachment. So they can't use the, the old fashioned Excel spreadsheet that has the macros that are actually launching it. Um, but they've gotten around that. There's ways to get around that um, to still be able to use phishing. So phishing is still very much used. Um, definitely a focus on zero days. And zero days have really helped ransomware increase in the last uh, you know, six, six months to a year. In fact, it's about 143% increase from Q1 of 2020 to Q1 of 2023 in ransomware attacks. And um, some of those uh, vulnerabilities like go anywhere and move it um, have really allowed ransomware attackers to uh, take advantage of that software vulnerability and, and get access to the network. The and yeah, on some of those, you know, those really scale. You break into something that is file sharing, and then you get ex access to multiple customers' files. So again, from the from the hacker's point of view, I, I can see where they want to go after those crimes at scale. Yes, yes. And they are starting to, you know, if you look at what Go Anywhere and Move It are doing there, it's all about... Um, you know, focusing on exfiltration of files. So, you know, we are starting to see kind of a more focus on grabbing data than on encrypting data. So I also saw in the report something around initial access brokers. What are those? So initial access brokers are uh, attackers that are really just focusing on getting into the network. That's all they do. They just want to figure out a way to get into the network. Usually, a lot of times, it, it might be by finding employee credentials or something like that. And then they sell access to the network to uh, another company. So they're not the ones that are actually breaking in. They're not the ones uh, installing the malware that will execute the ransomware. But you know, it, they're the ones that could sell you the way the access into the network. So in a sense, if you used initial access brokers and ransomware as a service, you really don't have to be technical at all. If you know where to find these, uh, these groups, you could actually use one to gain access to the network and another to kind of propagate that malware across the network. Um, and, 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 and it doesn't require any, any real experience on your side. Yeah, and then again, going back to that kind of miter, multiple steps here, they may take the first three or four steps of the entire attack sequence and then sell access to their work that makes sense it also you know I, I saw a great report from sophos that talked about i think it was 14 days and then this last year is down to 11 but the number of days between ransomware gaining access and actually encrypting the data and you know part of that they have to get in there they have to spread uh they want to make sure they have access to your backups um they want to make sure they have all the data uh, in, in this case, they may need time to exfil that data. But all that sounds like it gives you this window to discover them. And, and you know, that old saying, um, they have to get it right once, we have to get it right every time. Well, they have to get it right multiple times in a row because it sounds like there's a window between that initial access and when the access broker sells it, that that's a window to discover and mitigate. 
Yes, I mean you've got you've got that point, and then you also have that that window where the as you mentioned, where the the ransom or the malware has to propagate across the network, and that if you know what to look for and you have the visibility into it, um, it, it will show up. I mean, there are certain ports and protocols that are typically used, and it's very unusual behavior if you have visibility into it. I mean, if a serve if if one laptop starts to access uh, six hundred different machines and you know, a matter of minutes. If you if you have visibility to that, that kind of shows up very quickly as as a problem. Um, the, I think the challenge, though, is making sure you have visibility into it. But if you're able to detect that, then you know what's going on. And you're able to take action on that. So there's definitely multiple windows where you could um, take action and prevent uh, the the final thing, which is the ransomware. Yeah, I know DHS's CSI CISA group will put out these alerts. And they'll have a list of those indicators of compromise, those specific things you should be looking for that would alert them. Part of the problem is, I mean, we're all just drowning in data some days. But yeah, those are those are great points. So I see encryption is used for attackers to extort. Um, you know, it's kind of their tactic of choice. Is that still going on? I've heard you say a couple things that make me doubt this. So you mentioned backups, and I think there's a that's that's a uh, that's a good point to kind of start with because you know attackers are always evolving, and so obviously if if, if ransomware has probably been a major issue for companies for what, three or four or five years now, and everybody's saying back up your 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 solutions, make sure your backup systems work, make sure everything's up and running. Um, so we're starting to see a, a better protection against that data encryption. But attackers aren't just using the same old things in, uh, over and over again. They're going to uh, behave or respond to what companies do. So if companies are, are backing up better, then they're going to start to um, focus on other extortions. And that's exactly what we're yep. seeing. Um, we're seeing that victims um, are... are there's more of a focus on on data theft and uh, and 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 going out and um, you know holding hostage that data and selling it on the dark web and we're seeing it um, not only with malware or or, or zero day vulnerabilities like um, like like the move it but we're also seeing it at the application level too where we're seeing you know you don't even need to get into the network at that point if you can find that there's a vulnerability within let's say the the application's uh, database then you could grab things like customer information without ever having to penetrate the network it's just you're getting it from uh, a vulnerability within the internet facing application and we are starting to see more of that which is interesting cuz you know a couple of years ago, or even last year, everything was focused on you know protecting the network, and the attackers are shifting now and saying, well, we don't necessarily need that if we can get this data elsewhere, and if we can't rely on data encryption to to, to really put pressure on companies, we'll do it another way. Makes sense. Uh, we're coming up on around the halfway mark. I do want to remind folks, if you have any questions of either one of us or uh, questions that are adjacent to to ransomware. Um, you know, make sure if it's a really hard question to, to nominate Sean to answer it. But please just throw it in the comments and we would love to engage with you. So so as I as I hear you talking about this, then it does sound like, you know, they're coming in and and saying, listen, we're not making as much revenue here. 
Uh, they're doing better at defense. They're they're not paying because they have backups. Um, more and more of my peers are talking about shifting our budget from prevention to rapid detection. So you know we're we're trying to figure out: do we continue to to try to? I'll use that old analogy of a candy bar. Do we want a hard, crunchy exterior with a soft, gooey center? Great in a candy bar, bad in a network. Or do we want more of that? multiple opportunities to detect and rapidly respond. And that makes sense because I can see as we're shifting that budget to be more active mitigation, they would have to shift their business model. And if you started to soften up on the other side though, like, like you can't let up on any on any area because they'll just go back to what was working before. So if you if you if you shift your budget too much, and you and you start to leave yourself vulnerable in, in more of the traditional ways. You know, attackers have are, are known for going back to old exploits if those exploits still work. They're going to use whatever works. So, you know, being able to kind of check mark off multiple entryways, being able to kind of, as you said, have visibility into lots of different places and do rapid response. I think that is definitely uh, that makes sense. What's also interesting is you know ransomware is all about putting pressure on a company to pay. And one of the newer things that they're doing is actually going after the victim's customers. So, you know, think about just, just kind of a, a hypothetical. Imagine a, a healthcare company um, it gets attacked. Their data has been stolen. The attacker gets the customer data, goes after uh, of, of the victim. So let's say that some patient information. And then they go after those patients and let them know that that data has been uh, leaked or stolen. And that, um, you know, that's another, they can either extort the, the customer at that point, or they can put pressure on the actual company or the victim um, to pay to say, hey, we'll get all your customers to kind of go, what's going on? And then you're going to end up paying. Yeah, that has to be painful. I mean, worst case I'm imagining is I have customers calling me and saying, you know, you have to do everything you can to protect my data. Right. If you if you lose my data, I'm going to sue you. You know I can't. And so, you know, not only do you have this this operational impact, now you have people are actively talking to you about your brand, um, and it's kind of like they're doubling down. It just it's vicious in my mind. I'm sorry, but yes. I don't know how else to say it. No, it is. It's vicious. So uh, we keep talking about this as a business model. Um, how much are they making off of this? Um, well, so if we go back to uh, one of the successful attack groups of, of, of 2022 was, was Conti, um, there was an estimate, there was at one point they were estimated to have made about 200 million in revenue off of their attacks. Now they were very aggressive. They were actually probably the most aggressive one in 22, but that's how much revenue that they're generating. Now, as far as, you know, who are they targeting and how much are they getting per instance? Um, you know, they're targeting companies that are that are generating revenue right around 50 million. That's kind of what they think is a sweet spot. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going after bigger targets because sometimes bigger targets means bigger rewards. But what we're seeing is there is a sweet spot of the typical attack coming in right around 50 million with, I think, the idea that they're focusing on companies that are making enough money to pay for it, pay the ransom, but maybe not 
having a, a mature security group or, or a secure secure uh, or a mature security policy. So they're kind of focusing on companies, maybe a little weak in security, but, but can, can write that check form. And that check kind of, you know, how much they're charging, you know, what we're seeing is anywhere from $250,000 per instance to $2 million. And obviously that's going to change depending on the target, the victim, and, and how much they think they're going to be able to get from that particular victim. And am I safe in assuming this is, you know, through something like Bitcoin? Yep. Cryptocurrency is the way to go. Um, and, and we've seen that for, for the last several years where that's, that's um, you know, and what's interesting is that, you know, you hear like, oh, cryptocurrency, the idea is that it can't be traced and yet you know, there was an instance, what, a year, year and a half ago where the FBI was able to recover uh, a huge section, a huge chunk of, of, uh, of a ransomware um, by being able to trace that cryptocurrency. So um, it's, it, it, it's definitely the, the, the preferred choice, but that doesn't mean it's, it's completely uh, anonymous. Uh, Dark Tracers, uh, and I know I'm messing that name of the book up, but yeah, it came out. It was great, and it, it really talked about, you know, there there are techniques out there where they use uh, obfuscation to to hide how they're trying to launder the Bitcoin. But at some point, the Bitcoin needs to be moved into to fiat currency, real money, real dollars, and and you know, how do you hide that link? And tremendous uh, strides have been made in tracking that, but yeah. it doesn't seem to have slowed down the actual threat activity that I've seen. Yeah, and as, as we mentioned, like an 143% increase uh, year over year. So no, it's, it's not discouraging. So the other thing, and, I, and this does make sense, you know, I, I think at 50 million, I probably have a security program but I may not have a 24 by seven sock. I may not have a threat intelligence team. You know, I may not have a forensics team. Um, and, and so those are, are, I don't know what point those come on, but I think once you start to get all those things, you're at a higher level of protection. Again, anybody that's doing a very targeted effort, but most of this seems to be I don't want to say target of opportunity, but realistic return on investment of time. Yeah. So uh, the other thing I think about, you talk about size of company, but type of company. You yeah. know, I think, you know, regulated industries versus non-regulated, motivated to pay. I think of something like a critical provider, a healthcare, lives are on the line. Um, are there differences in industry in what we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned critical infrastructure. Um, and again, critical infrastructure just means there's just more pressure for them to resolve the issue. And sometimes that means more pressure to pay. Uh, manufacturing, uh, we saw a 42% increase in manufacturing. And manufacturing has a couple of different challenges. Number one, it's critical infrastructure. Number two, a lot of times they have specialized and legacy operating systems. And what I mean by that is that it's, um, it's, it's, uh, maybe legacy operating systems, meaning that the operating system's old, more vulnerable, but it's the only operating system that allows them to do what they need to do on the manufacturing floor. Um, so there's, there are opportunities to attack that kind of specialized or legacy operating systems. Um, and, and, and manufacturing is just um, probably, it, well, it is the biggest um, particular uh, industry for ransomware right now. 
But you know, think about healthcare. It's the same. It's very similar. Healthcare can be considered critical infrastructure. Uh, we saw a 39% increase in healthcare, and they're dealing with legacy systems and they're dealing with medical Internet of Things. Um, so they have their own kind of set of challenges. Plus, you know, if really, if you think about healthcare, they are so much more. They need to communicate and interact with multiple systems and multiple uh, uh, organizations, and that can possibly get them more open and more susceptible because there's such a, a reliance on, you know, if you think about the different types of doctors and insurance and the payers and pays and medical and prescriptions. And I mean, there's so much information that has to be shared uh, in, in the healthcare industry to, to, to kind of take care of a patient. And uh, that can be taken advantage of. Yeah, and it does seem very much true. I, and, you know, part of this, I think, is um, some of that data that you talked about exfilling has different value. I know yeah. healthcare is the most valuable data to sell, you know, followed probably by financial and then, you know, personal data. Um, and, and there's just so many ways to, to make revenue here. Uh, I do want to pause for a second. I I think I went off camera for a second while I looked it up because I knew I messed up the title. It was uh, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for Cybercrime Lords by Andy Greenberg. is a fantastic book on the cryptocurrency economy and, and investigations. And anybody that knows me knows I'm a huge book nerd. So you're going to get a lot of book references from me. Uh, and I will even go so far as to talk about the uh, Cyber Cannon group. Uh, if you go out and look for Cyber Cannon, um, it's, it's a book of, uh, it's a website of books with short reviews on all the books and recommendations. So uh, yeah, great opportunity for future learning. Uh, coming back to what we were actually talking about. Um, so a lot of these industries we were talking about have heavily regulated, are heavily regulated or have a lot of standards like PCI. Um, what's happening on that front? So um, we are starting to see kind of a reaction from, from uh, government agencies. In fact, um, regulation enforcement by the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets or OFAC um, may actually make it illegal to pay ransom to certain parties and individuals. And that's that's really interesting. That's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out because if you think about, you know, ransomware attackers, they just want to get paid. They want to put as much pressure on a company to pay them. If you make it illegal to pay them, are they going to continue to attack the same targets or are they going to go elsewhere? Um, are, they going to, are they going to go to maybe another country or another region where that's, that, that type of legislation uh, hasn't been enacted? Uh, so I think kind of from the, from a kind of a high level focus, when I when I heard that, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. If, if we basically make it illegal to, to pay them, they're probably going to go elsewhere because uh, trying to fight that and, and still pressure a company is that's a very uphill battle uh, where if I could probably just go to another country and focus on that. Uh, it, it might it might actually discourage uh, ransomware attackers from from focusing on certain industries. Yeah, I know here in the United States, it's almost state by state, you have to follow regulations. So uh, constantly trying to, to understand what's going across, uh, you know, and, and we have the traditional privacy, data localization, or data sovereignty. Uh, we're seeing more and more laws come out on resiliency. Uh, now we're seeing laws come out on 
not so much just reporting, but what we can do to interact with the criminals. Uh, just a huge changing landscape. I do want to change gears here for just a second. So, well, I guess for the rest of the show. So um, we've talked a lot about the threat trends, uh, how they're shifting off to, to more zero days, uh, how it's becoming part of a larger ecosystem. A little bit about, you know, how they're doing it, what they're doing it. Let's change to say, what can we do about it? And so, right. you know, as you're thinking about these attacks, are there things that people need to know to, to figure out what to do? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the first thing that that might be surprising to, to, to some companies is, or to some people is that um, when you get attacked, that might actually just be the beginning of your troubles. So what, what I mean by that is that if you are attacked and, um, and, and had a ransomware attack on you, um, you are six times more likely to experience a subsequent attack within the first three months of the initial attack. And if you think about it, that completely makes sense considering you know, attackers are opportunistic. If one company, if one attacker group managed to do it, everybody's thinking, well, there's gotta be a vulnerability. There's gotta be something there that they, they, they figured out. I bet you I could do that too. So it's almost like you're, you're, you're sending up a signal flare that, hey, there's a company over here that um, has some sort of vulnerability and you can take advantage of it. And you see this also in data breaches. Anytime a company has to disclose a data breach, you see an increase in attempted attacks uh, and attempted data breaches on that company because it's, it's the same thing. It's, hey, we got hit. Um, they stole data. They had to figure out a way to do it. If they can do it, so can you. Come, come take a look to see. And plus, if you think about how long it takes to, 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 uh, to implement security to kind of remove that vulnerability, whatever it is, um, that, that entryway into either data breaches or ransomware, that takes time. So there's a certain amount of time that I think attackers know the company's not gonna be able to fix whatever was wrong within a couple of days. So there's a certain amount of time that they can try to take advantage of it before it's fixed. That just doesn't seem fair. If I'm fighting a fire, you shouldn't be lighting more fires while I'm fighting a fire. Yeah. It just doesn't feel fair. Yeah, and they go, hey, you're flammable. Let's go ahead and pile on. <laughs> so earlier you talked about bug bounty programs. Um, I know that I, I had used those before as a CISO. Talk to me more about what's going on there. So... Um, you know, with the focus of bug bounties and and really, I think the in-house development of zero-day attacks, um, I think the, the I think companies have to rethink, or not even necessarily rethink, just make sure that they are addressing zero days. I mean, we've I, I, it seems like I mentioned Log4j a million times because everybody seems to relate to it, but that was a huge vulnerability in December of 2021 that seemed to have, wake, have kind of woken up many companies to, wow, this could really be, uh, you know, negatively impact us. This could really be a major issue for us. If that wasn't enough of a wake-up call <laughs> back and then, then this should be a wake-up call, which is, you know, data or, or zero-day exploits, typically you start to see the pile on. And we've actually seen this from, from the application side, where as soon as there's an application vulnerability, Less than 24 hours after that announcement that, there, that the, whether it was leaked or whether the company that, that owns the software or the vulnerability announces it, 
um, you see the, the, the kind of the pylon on attackers trying to exploit that. So if you know that attackers are going to start to attack a vulnerability with less than 24 hours of its announcement, what are you doing as a company to mitigate those vulnerabilities? How are you going to mitigate them? How are you going to buy yourself time to mitigate them? Um, you know, what security solutions are you going to put in place to give you the ability to kind of mitigate the exploit while you go in and fix whatever you need to fix? Do you have visibility into, um, you know, that was a big thing with Lock4j. Companies would say, I don't know how many servers have this in it. Well, you need to have that visibility so that you can address these zero days and you need to do them fast because attackers are not waiting around. Um, they're, they're attacking very quickly. Yeah, I know here at Akamai, like, you know, when Log4j came out, we have one team trying to make sure our security controls can detect and, and mitigate that at the edge. We have another team trying to make sure we here at Akamai don't have vulnerabilities. So now we're trying to do discovery. Where do we use that protocol? Uh, what version is it? What kind of data is attached to it so we can do some risk assessment? Uh, and then thirdly, we have our, you know, our vendor managers going out to our critical providers and saying, are you vulnerable? And so I think that's critical, just like you said, to have a rapid response on all of that because it is, you know, all of a sudden the regulators could be coming to you, your senior leadership, even the board could be coming and saying, hey, for this thing I'm hearing all over the news, are we vulnerable? Yeah. Um, so what else can we be doing to protect ourselves? Well, when I talk to companies, one of the biggest things that uh, I feel like they, they need help with, um, and it's probably one of the biggest things that would uh, help protect against ransomware is having a strong understanding of your attack surface, having visibility into your network. Um, and to kind of oversimplify this, because it, it probably is oversimplification. If you imagine uh, a network like a house, um, obviously, there are certain, like the front door is, is the expected entryway for most things, um, but that's not the only entryway. And so maybe for guests, the front door is, is, is expected, but then, you know, maybe employees come in through the garage door, right? So um, attackers are going to look at the front door. Sure, if it's obviously open, then, then maybe they'll be able to walk into it. But that's not the only way that they're going to look into it. They'll look at the garage door. They'll come around the back. They will perhaps bring a ladder to check the windows upstairs. So you need to have an understanding of all of your entry and exit points for your network um, and then have visibility into it because, you know, at this point, we're kind of assuming at some point somebody's going to get into the network. But once they're in the network, how much damage can they do? So having visibility to see um, attacks that are moving kind of east and west through the network is critical. And then being able to make some pretty simple controls such as, um, tightening down ports and protocols that are typically used for ransomware. Just have a policy that says, look, this laptop cannot go <laughs> RDP into this particular server. Um, you know, it's just, we're just, we're going to start writing rules to kind of prevent that activity. So it's, it's visibility. I would also say zero trust uh, is, is, is like this. That's actually what zero trust was all about, right? Which was you can't trust anybody coming in and out of your network, but you also can't trust anybody that's going in already in the network. Yeah, and I agree. And, and let's not forget about the second half of Zero Trust, that segmentation, reducing your attack surface, yes. reducing the external facing stuff, 
uh, putting a fence around your backyard so people aren't able to just walk to your back door. All of that stuff is critical. What else? So, you know, we, a lot of times companies think of technical security solutions when they're thinking about ransomware. But I would say that one of the biggest things that really needs to kind of happen, um, you know, not to put the cart in front of the horse, is making sure that you have strong processes, strong playbooks, that you've walked through these exercises on, you know, these types of scenarios. Um, have you decided beforehand if you're going to pay the ransomware or not? You know, that's not something that that I'm 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 here to judge on or anything like that. That's that's good. That's a corp. That's a company decision. And you need to engage legal and you need to engage the executives and you need to have that decision. And it's better to do it now when you're not under attack than when you are under attack and you're under duress. So, you know, you need to have playbooks and run through these and understand what is the process if this happens? What are we going to do? Who needs to get involved? That's going to help you uh, make those decisions. It's gonna help you recover much faster um, regardless of the decision that you make when it comes to um, how you're going to approach uh, that particular attack. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I really like, uh, you know, kind of talking about that before the crisis. Uh, yeah. This is a time, you know, in the middle of crisis, making a plan, not a good idea. Uh, and some of these are big legal considerations, you know, and um, how do if I'm going to pay, how do I get to Bitcoin? Do I want a third party to adjudicate, you know, be my intermediary, um, you know, and they, and they could hold the money and, and a lot of great advice there. What else? Yeah, I mean, and, and exactly what you said. So legal, legal could be a great partner because of the fact that they might need to be involved in the payment. Uh, if cyber insurance, I think, was something that, you know, does understanding and bringing legal in so that they can uh, consult now that we're dealing with legislation, you know, issues. It's it's definitely an, a group that you need to bring in earlier. Um, and then I would say if you have a security group that can monitor your outbound traffic for um, and your inbound traffic for indicators of compromise, which means you know you kind of mentioned MITRE, um, and I think that's a that's a great place to start. But it's like if you understand the behavior of the attackers, you know what to look for within your own network. So if you see unusual activity. You're, you might be able to just easily look at that and go, wait a minute, that's the same ports and protocols that this particular attack types likes to use. Okay, we need to, we need to act fast on that. So being able to know how attackers attack and being able to see the signs of them um, is going to allow you to respond uh, much quicker. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, the two things you've said before. The one is, that moving east-west, that's your first chance to detect them. As they're spreading, I always say, like spreading like a cancer throughout your, your organization. You yes. know, that's an opportunity to see them. And now you're talking about the second most likely point to catch them as they're, they're pulling that data out. They have command and control, and they've got to exfil the data. And both of those are chances to see, you know, why is this database sending files outside the network? You know, if you, if you have something that notices that and alerts on that, then you're going to be able to mitigate. So uh, both of those make perfect sense on, and it, it comes back to that holy grail of visibility. How are you detecting that activity? Yep. Um, and I would say probably one of the, one of the other things is 
um, you know, patch, train, and protect. What, you know, patch, obviously, patch your, patch your software. That's how you get rid of vulnerabilities. Um, do it as fast as you possibly can. Train. We mentioned that phishing was a major component on how to get malware into a network. Are you training your employees to be able to identify a possible phishing campaign? Are you training them not to just simply click on an attachment from uh, maybe a, a, a particular sender that you don't know um, who that sender is? Uh, you know, if you think about, we, we talk about this a lot in security, the weakest link in security typically is the, 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 the personnel. So let's train them so that they're not the weak link. Let's train them so that they're able to spot those phishing campaigns. And then obviously, Protect, that gets to that security solution side. Do you have security solutions in front of things and behind things and to separate things out so that you can monitor and take action when there is uh, attack activity? Yeah, that makes sense. And I'll, I'll kind of dogpile on train. Not only train your people, but make sure you're training your staff. You know, you talked about playbooks before and validating them. I think that's incredibly important here is, you know, have you trained for a zero day that's protocol based? Uh, have you trained to find a third party to, you know, do I use this very common vendor that I just heard was compromised? Um, do I use an application? Um, and so there, there are so many ways here to make sure, you know, if I'm going to, you had great advice, treat it like a breach. You know, um, if, if I'm treating this like a breach, then... Do I have a crisis management plan? Because that includes the PR team going out and talking about what you're doing. And it talks about forensics team coming in. Am I going to have a third-party forensics team come in and help me analyze what's happened? Um, you know, have I checked my backs up? Have I done an exercise? Uh, my wife worked for a company, and she goes, oh, yeah, we do backups. When I was asking her about it, she goes, yeah, they take about a minute. And I'm just like, Honey, your backups have no information. <laughs> you know, and so have you tested those backups? Um, there's so much around validation of this, and we have so much going on every day. And I, I know that this may not feel like practical advice, but it is critical to just say, this year we're going to do two exercises. We're going to exercise our backup, and we're going to exercise our breach plan, or we're going to whatever it is, but at least try to get a couple of those in every year. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about ransomware. Up front, you mentioned DDoS. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, within this broader extortion, are there things people should be doing in, in DDoS? So, yes, DDoS is... I would say is, is we're seeing it more in ransomware now, but DDoS or distributed denial service extortion uh, has been around for years um, as a standalone. So we've, we've had uh, distributed denial service extortion campaigns uh, being run where that's, that's all they're doing. And um, so what you typically get there is you get the email, you get the notification, and then they're, they're, they may attack, they may not attack, even if you pay them, they still may attack, they may not attack. Um, and, and we should probably, might, might not hurt to mention right now that even if you pay a ransomware group, that doesn't mean that they're obligated to do what you want them to do. Like, you know, they're still an illegal group. Um, they'll do whatever they want to do. And if they don't want to give you keys to the encryption, you know, that's something you need to take into consideration when you're paying them is um, they may not, you know, 
carry out either the attack or, or not carry out the attack, um, you really are taking kind of a chance whenever you're, you're, you're dealing with a group like that. So um, when it comes to DDoS, you know, DDoS is kind of an old uh, attack group. It's been around for a while. I would say just make sure that you have a distributed denial of service uh, security solution, not just for the ransomware, but I mean, we're seeing these campaigns all the time. So hopefully most companies have thought about how they're going to approach um, uh, distributed denial of service attacks. And going back to ransomware, even if you get the key and it's the right key, you're probably not going to get 100% recovery. On, on DDoS, you know, there are attacks against your infrastructure. There's attacks against your DNS infrastructure. There's attacks against your web page. And, and you'll see this because, you know, if you hear uh, bits per second, it's against your, your bandwidth. If you hear uh, requests per second, it's against your web page. Uh, queries per second. So we just, we've seen a lot of records in, in requests per second against web pages. I would also say make sure that you have the scale you need. Look at what the largest attacks are today. Make sure that your system has the right uh, scope or scale. Uh, think about duration, think about impacts. A lot is in there. Uh, we're coming up on the top of the hour. Final thoughts and advice to listeners, please. Sure, I think we've, we've, we've harped on it, but I don't think we've harped on it enough. Make sure you prepare. You know, Benjamin Franklin said that uh, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. Uh, it, Yes, you need security solutions. Yes, there's some technical aspects to it. But if you haven't walked through the process procedures, if you haven't thought through how you're going to deal with certain attacks, I mean, that's where it all starts. And that's what gets you back uh, and recovering quickly um, when it comes to really any type of attack. Great. And, and I will echo that. Um, really, I think the key here is you know, how are you going to leverage this? There's some great insights in this. Um, you know, for, for me, it is about that plan. Um, so Sean, where can people go to get this information? So you can get it from the Akamai website, so www.akamai.com. And then if you do forward slash security dash research, you'll actually see um, all of the security blogs that we have, including all of the state of the internet reports um, that, are, that are available. And they're, they're all available for, for consumption. And I want to thank everybody again. It's always a blast to come on here. I enjoyed uh, my last section with Kim talking about how to do a career. Always enjoy dragging Sean on here to kind of go through our research. I appreciate his uh, help on these. And take care. Be safe. Thanks. tuning into and security for all be sure to join your host kim hakem for another episode of the show next friday at noon pacific time and 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel and don't forget you can follow kim on linkedin by searching for kim hakem that's kim h-a-k-i-m to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? 
FutureCon events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.